Hi everyone, this is Yin and welcome to Growth From Failure. I wanted to create this show to highlight extraordinary people that inspire and motivate me to level up, but with a slight twist. I'll have conversations with people from a variety of professions, from investors to entrepreneurs to educators to athletes, because I enjoy hearing a really good success story from any discipline. But I wanted to view their story more through a lens of struggle or hardship and even failure. Because for me, the biggest lessons learned and opportunities to grow aren't from the wins or triumphs, but from the setbacks and defeat. So instead of reviewing their highlight reel with all the success and accomplishments, we'll talk about some of the bloopers that includes the mistakes and the rocky roads, which can be glossed over, but oftentimes more impactful to their mindset and success. I hope hearing their journey inspires you to not fear failing, but motivates you to reflect, to keep learning, and ultimately to keep growing. You win more from a lost game than a won game. That is a quote from Elizabeth Shaughnessy, founder of the Berkeley Chess School. Elizabeth was women's chess champion in Ireland. She has played in seven international chess Olympiads and is active in chess tournaments around the world. She served as president of Cal Chess and is on the U.S. Chess Executive Board. In this episode, you'll hear Elizabeth's journey. She's proudly 81 years young and mentioned she has no plans on dying. She grew up in Ireland, where she had a lovely childhood and learned chess from watching her dad play. You'll hear Elizabeth say a few times, children live up to what's expected of them. And her parents expected a lot. At a time when her high school didn't offer senior math classes for girls, her dad insisted that Elizabeth at least get tested. And not surprisingly after that, girls were allowed to take that class after she and nine other girls passed the exam. She graduated high school at the age of 16 and traveled throughout Europe for two years, which eventually inspired her to become an architect after college in Dublin. When I asked her about some of her most impactful failures, she highlights giving up piano too soon because she didn't think she was as good as Mozart or Beethoven. She also says architecture was another failure for her because she didn't think she was very good at it. It wasn't until we started speaking about the Berkeley Chess School that the light and passion in her eyes really lit up the room. She held her first chess class back in 1982 at her son's elementary school, and she had a surprising 72 students show up that day. Today, the Berkeley Chess School reaches 7,000 kids annually throughout 150 Bay Area schools. Her goal isn't to create world-class chess champions or grandmasters, which by the way, the school has done. Her mission is to bring chess to everyone because she believes it makes her better citizens and critical thinkers. I found it so fascinating to hear how chess has positively impacted her students, how she has seen boys and girls play chess differently, and as a result, how she teaches girls to play more aggressively, and why she believes chess is so important for kids and adults outside the game. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Elizabeth, the Mies van der Rohe of chess. So Elizabeth, you were an architecture major in Ireland. You've traveled all around Europe and somehow landed in Berkeley, California, and eventually opened up the Berkeley Chess School. Can we rewind your story a little bit and <laughs> talk about where you grew up? Yes, I grew up in Dublin, Ireland. I was one of two children. I had one brother. My father was an accountant. My brother eventually became an accountant and uh, followed in his footsteps. And my mother was a manager, or they called it manageress in those days, of quite a big hotel when she was single. And in those days, she had to drop it when she got married because married women weren't allowed to work. Uh, amazing how far we've come in this day and age, and but it's also amazing how far we have to go still. But that was the situation. 
She was a very energetic woman, obviously, and very smart. But anyway, she brought up her two kids. That was the way it was done at the time. And it was great growing up. So I went to school, I went to college, did architecture. But when I finished school, I was too young to go to college. In those days, they wouldn't let you in to college unless you were 18 years old, no matter what. And I graduated at 16. So I had two years to fill in. And my parents sent me off to Brussels, Belgium, to continue my studies in in music, piano, at the conservatoire there. I stayed in a convent school. I I went to a convent school. This is Ireland. We're talking about an all-girls convent school in Ireland and a boarding school and a boarding school in Brussels, which was also, of course, all-girls. That's where I lived. And then actually the people from the conservatoire came to the school. It was a very prestigious sort of school, and they came to the school and I continued my studies in piano. And then I was 18, I came back and went to university and did architecture. And how did you pick architecture if you had a passion for music and piano? One of the things my parents gave me was the notion of perfection. If somehow, if you weren't a Mozart or a Beethoven, then it sort of wasn't worth pursuing. And I bought that, unfortunately, <laughs> because I was very good. But I knew I wasn't a Mozart or a Beethoven. So I was actually offered a place in, in the Paris Conservatoire, thanks to the exams I did in, in Brussels. And I turned it down because I wasn't a Mozart or a Beethoven. So then I come, come along, why do I choose architecture? Because when I was in Europe, of course, I traveled around and saw these amazing buildings. And I sort of thought, oh, wouldn't it be wonderful to design something like that and have something like that built? It'd be wonderful. So I'll do architecture which was a mistake because I'd never even taken art in school. So when I went in in the first year, all the other kids were able to draw magnificent things and I wasn't able to draw anything. However, I was very good at other things that are included in architecture and I did qualify, finally did graduate and became an architect. And I don't regret that. It was a fantastic discipline and I never did become a great artist but as though my first job was in Belgrade, in what was then Yugoslavia, and Tito was there, and it was all very peaceful, at least that's what it seemed like for me. And I was there for a good five or six months, so it wasn't like a two-week visit. And I visited a lot of homes, and I met a lot of people, and I never saw any indication that there was this hatred under it all, never. I think Tito held it all together, frankly. And once he was gone, it started to... And ended up just with appalling carnage and dreadful, dreadful thing. But anyway, I worked as an architect in Yugoslavia. But the advantage of architecture is, of course, it's not a verbal thing. So you don't have to speak the language fluently. In fact, when I went to Yugoslavia, I didn't speak it at all. And eventually I could have a conversation, but wasn't fluent in the language. But I was still able to function as an architect. And that served me great, you know. So that was my first job. Were you afraid to go to Yugoslavia not knowing the language? And did you just follow afraid? the job no, opportunity? No, no, I was young. You're not afraid when you're young. <laughs> I was 16 years old. So heavens, I knew everything. Don't we all know everything at 16? <laughs> right. like by the way, by, right now I'm 81. So I've lived quite a while. So and far. so your first job, did you enjoy it? I did enjoy it, yes. Yes. I mean, it was, it was so interesting. I was part of an, uh, somehow they had set up a group. So students came from all over the world who had graduated in all sorts of disciplines. And they started a new Belgrade. 
And I was so impressed that they weren't knocking down old Belgrade and building new Belgrade that they actually uh, said they would maintain this beautiful city. The population was growing. They needed more housing, more everything. And so they built new Belgrade. And we were all... So I met there students from all over the world in all sorts of disciplines. And we were all young. I was a little younger than most, but we were all young and had an absolutely fantastic time, both intellectually and socially. It was just wonderful. The Yugoslavs were very friendly, nice, outgoing people, handsome men. (laughs) (laughs) They also had a system. They started very early, I think six o'clock in the morning, but it all ended at two in the afternoon. So so it felt as if you'd every day off. At two o'clock in the afternoon, you'd go swimming or you'd go, you know, to the beach and then you'd, you'd go to bed early. But it felt as if you'd every day off, which was amazing. The other extraordinary thing was there was extraordinary, it shouldn't be called extraordinary, but it is. There was childcare in the basement of the building, a very large high-rise building. So mothers could go down and nurse their children. They could go down if the child was crying excessively, they could go down and take care of their children. Uh, this was in uh, 1962. We still haven't got it here is, in this that, so-called that, developed that country. Extraordinary, yeah. Given my childcare situation, yeah, yeah. This was quote communism, except they were socialists, but they weren't communist. And Tito had declined to join the USSR, uh, so it was a little different. But it was just quite, quite an education for me in every way. So I loved it. Wonderful. How long were you at that job for? I stayed. The rest of the students went back around in September, and I went back around uh, November or December. We went there in June, the beginning of the summer, May or June. So that was my first job. Then I came back and I think subsequently I went to London and worked in London for Sir Giles Gilbert Scott, I remember. And I didn't, I wasn't happy there for, I don't know what reason, people were very nice. But Was it the role or the task that you were given? No, I think I was, I think I was homesick. I think that's what it was, as well as which I'd met a man in a boy, I suppose he was at the time, in Ireland who I'd left and wanted to get back. And, you know, I think it had nothing to do with London because I've been to London since and it's a wonderful city. I don't know why I didn't stay there. <laughs> it was really nice. How long were you there for? Not very long. I'd say maybe three months, four months, maybe. Yeah, it's a long time ago, maybe six months, but not very long anyway. As well as which I roomed with a friend I had met, an English woman I had met in Yugoslavia, and I shared an apartment in in London, in Hampstead. You couldn't get a nicer place to, to stay. And she was a student at LSE, and I used to go there to the gym, and it was the first time I'd ever seen her jumped on a trampoline. And so I, it should have been wonderful, but, and, you know, I'm, she introduced me to all her friends, and it was every Sunday we'd go to her house for lunch, which was dinner, really. But anyway, circumstances were such that I was didn't like it, came back. Um, pretty soon after that, I came to the United States. I didn't like that either. <laughs> I loved New York. What brought you to the States? I wanted to travel. I had the ability now. I had, I had a job. I had a, a skill that I could turn into a job wherever I was. And I wanted to travel. And the United States was certainly somewhere I wanted to see. I came to New York and loved it. And then I had a cousin who lived in Los Angeles, Ventura, actually, which then wasn't quite Los Angeles, I don't think. And he invited me over to stay with him and his wife, which I did. And I did not like at all Los Angeles. It was painful. It was so contrary. First of all, being Irish was a disadvantage because people had very fixed ideas of what the Irish were. 
and their ideas come what the Irish had been when their parents or grandparents left the country. And it had drastically changed since then. And so I was treated like this uh, one, one person saying, a young girl in college saying she wanted to go to Ireland to start schools there. I thought, start schools there. Schools are better than your schools. What are you talking about? Were you there just for a visit or were you there for no, a No, no, I worked. I worked How there. Long were you I in worked a, in a place called Oxnard, of all places, which is really not a very nice place. But I lived in Ventura, which was a lovely little beach town at the time. And the weather was lovely and the skies were blue and it wasn't smogged over. And it was really lovely at the time, Ventura. But Oxnard was pretty grim. <laughs> but I worked there and I worked for a wonderful firm. I got along very well in architecturally in the job. I loved it. But I did not like the social life there, and I came home. Actually, soon after I came home, my father died. Well, I came back in about July. My father died in August. My brother had married and moved out, and he was six years older than me. He'd married actually young, so he'd married a long time. How old were you when you moved back to Ireland? I think it was, I was 25. or No, no, no. No, I was older, about 27, 28, and moved back. But it was also interesting that I came to America at that time. so easy to come. And I got a green card, so with no trouble at all. So then I stayed in Ireland, and I worked in Ireland, with, with, lived with my mother, and worked there as an architect, and started my own practice, actually. Because whilst I wasn't a... Mies van der Rohe. I was good at my job in that I did, I did listen to what people had to say and I did, was able to produce what they wanted on, on the whole and therefore people liked to work with me. They could get what they wanted. But architecture was not doing it for me. Uh, I was not a Mies van der Rohe. I was not a Beethoven. I was not a Mozart. <laughs> I was not perfect. And so why bother? Then one day I met my husband, my husband-to-be. And that's an interesting story. There's too much to say. I'll just go <laughs> on. He came. His name was Shaughnessy. And my maiden name was O'Shaughnessy. <laughs> and he came, as Americans do, to look up their heritage or their past or whatever it is they feel they're missing. And we in Ireland scorned at that, of course, because we never <laughs> moved anywhere, so we knew <laughs> who everybody was. Uh, but anyway, he came looking for his heritage, and that's how we met. The story is he knocked on the door and said, I'm looking for, in, for my past. And I said, forget your past, I'm your future. <laughs> but it didn't actually happen quite like that. But what happened was I didn't take him seriously at all. We, we went out together. We, I think we, we, were, we knew each other all of three days. And he, uh, I was leaving to play chess in the south of England. And he was going back to the United States. So we both went our merry ways. I, was, I had a boyfriend at the time, and it, was, it wasn't a chess player and I went with him to to the south of England to to play chess and that was that I thought you know another American passing through <laughs> but in fact he then started to write poetry to me about me and for me and romance and whatnot and I thought oh my goodness and sort of so he'd fallen in love with me in three days that is in three tremendous. days in three days <laughs> I right. can see why right in three days <laughs> Maybe if we'd stay together longer, he'd have changed his mind. <laughs> Three days is it. So he invited me over, and I had been in California, and I didn't like it, and that's where he was. He was from Iowa. He had come with a, I forget, a GI something, 
to do to go to Bolt Hall to do law. I forget what it's called, but they pay for you somehow. Oh, at UC Berkeley, the Bolt School of Law? Yeah. Yeah. He'd graduated from Iowa University. Yes, in English it was. And then he went as a soldier. And then it was the Korean War. And then he came back and had this opportunity to go to graduate school. And he did. And he came to Bolt Hall and he became an attorney. So that was his, his story. But he stayed in Berkeley as anybody in their right mind would. (laughs) (laughs) And I understood California to be what I had experienced in Los Angeles, which was not at all the same, or at least I should stay in, say, in Ventura. So I thought, oh, God, you know, California, I don't want to go to California again. He said, oh, it's different. It's North California. It's different from Southern California. And I told him all my complaints. So I thought, gosh, I'll chance it. So I came over and I fell in love. After that, you know, we lived together for a while. Did you fall in love with him or in Ber- with Berkeley? Both. <laughs> I mean, Berkeley helped. But <laughs> yeah, it was clearly very different from and much more like Ireland in terms of their philosophies and social thinking and all of that. So going back a little bit, that's your first mention of chess when he visited you and then kind of returned back to the States. But yeah. You mentioned you were going to a, a tournament in, yeah. in England. Did you always love chess growing up? I learned chess. It was played in the home, as it is in many places in Europe. Almost every home in Europe at that time would have done that and played the piano too. So my brother was six years older than me, so I watched my brother and my father play. Also, during World War II, where a lot of people wanted to leave Germany, who were not safe in Germany. And this particular Catholic family, who were, the man was the ambassador from Lithuania to Germany at the time, and they were th- under threat. So they left with their one son. So there's a man and his wife and the son. The son's name, I remember, was Katutis Skirpa. I remember it to this day. Anyway, I had a cousin who was a Jesuit, and through the Jesuits, they hooked up with my family, and we took in that family while they were waiting to get to the United States, which is where they wanted to be ultimately. And they were with us about two or three years. It was a long time before they got the clearance to go. So my father and this man played chess. So I watched chess from when I was tiny and liked it, wanted to be what they did, you know. So that was my introduction to chess. So we played chess at home. And then when I went to college, I got on the chess team in in college. And that was when I started to play seriously, like realize there are actual books to read and there's openings and things. In my father's chess world, and I suppose chess world at the time in homes at any rate, you would say check to the queen, which meant you would warn your opponent that your queen was being attacked. Oh, that didn't, that doesn't apply at all in real chess. You don't say a word. And if they lose their queen, you're thrilled. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so that was, uh, that was where, when I started chess. And as I said, in college, I played. And then uh, when I graduated, there was a graduate club and I played in that. Then I, I became Irish Women's Chess champion, champion, and then I qualified to go and play in the first Olympiad I went to was in Lublin in Poland, and it was an all-women's Olympiad. And I think it was one of the last, if not the last, all-women's Olympiad. And they used to happen in the years that the uh, men's didn't happen. And that was, again, interesting. That was my first Olympiad, and my second Olympiad was when I was in my 60s. 
because I got married, had children, you know, started the Berkeley Chess School, wasn't playing chess. And then I, I go to Ireland quite frequently and a friend of mine said there, oh, I don't, why don't you play for the Irish team? And I said, I can. I mean, I'm American. Oh, sure. So I thought, oh, I'll do that. So that was the second. And it was in Alista in a place called Kalmykia, which is most people don't know that there are Asians in Europe this side of the Urals. It's all Asian. It's the descendants of Genghis Khan. It's Buddhist, primarily. It's socialist, for sure. Actually, they're in and out of, they were in and out of the Soviet Union. And the man who was president of the country at the time is also president of FIDE, which is the International Federation of Chess. And they built a chess city for that Olympiad. And it wasn't quite finished when we got there, so they had to put off the start by a few days. Just fascinating. I had no idea there was such a culture in Europe. So when we talk of Europeans, hey, (laughs) these people are Europeans. So you glossed over the fact that you started the Berkeley Chess School in that story. Can we (laughs) rewind? So you moved to Berkeley, California. You loved it. You fell in love with your husband. Now husband had three extraordinary children. What prompted you to start the Berkeley Chess School. Oh, that's a story too. Um, <laughs> so my, my oldest child is a daughter and she was in the third grade. My son was in the first grade. And the principal of the school wanted to get a late bus. We did busing at the time and we still do, but we did a certain type of busing then. Uh, kindergarten through third grade was bussed up from the flatlands and fourth through sixth was fourth through sixth was bust down to the flatland. So there was some form of equity. Everybody had to bus at some point to everybody else's location. So they were in a K3 school in our neighborhood. So they weren't bused for the K3 and it was, they couldn't wait to be bused. They just couldn't wait to be bused to be in the fourth grade and get on the bus and go to school. Uh, that was very, uh, very thrilling for them. But anyway, the principal of the school wanted to get a late bus for his children who were who lived in the flatlands and so they could do tutoring and things after school with the children who lived in the neighborhood who were getting tutoring after school when they needed it so these children weren't because they had to go home on the late on the bus so uh, he wanted a late bus and he didn't get the late bus immediately and in order to get it he asked the PTA if they would do an after school program for children so that he could justify the late bus so for all the children and I thought, oh my God, what can I do? All I can do is chess. I suppose I can. I suppose I can offer that. So I did, and I expected about ten children, and I expected them to be all boys. And I got seventy-two children, and half of them were girls, and half of them were boys, and half of them were at the time African American, and half of them were white, Caucasian. I was just astonished. Chess, it turns out, was in all homes, irrespective. And but it wasn't anywhere, anywhere else. Like it wasn't in homes like it is in in Europe, and there was no organization around it. But it was there, and I remember it so well. Seventy-two people, parents included, all excited, and I had six chess sets and boards, <laughs> and nothing else. I remember holding up the board and saying to seventy-two people. So it was the the parents. Some of the parents of PT had brought uh, snacks and things, and it was like a big party. But the chess. So I divided it into two thirty-six um, each class, and I taught two days, and then I thought 
That was great. It was, of course, free. Was, I was volunteering. My children were at the school. My, my youngest was still a baby. He wasn't even at school. He was in preschool. So uh, that was how it started. And then other schools in Berkeley heard about this and said, oh, we want it, we want it. So there's five days in the week, school week, there's one of me. So five schools got it, and then more schools wanted it. So I went, there was a Berkeley Chess Club going at the time, and I was a member and I played chess there. I remember going and asking the people at the chess club if they would volunteer teaching in these schools, and they said, no, we'll teach if we get paid. So I thought, hmm, okay. So if I was to pay, if I have to pay them, then I have to charge a fee. And I thought, well, let's go to the PTA, the general, the overall PTA, and see if they wouldn't fund it. And they said, no, we'll pay for our own children, but we're not gonna, we're not gonna fund it. So I thought, all right, I'll charge a little more. So to those who can afford to pay, so I can have those who can't afford to pay, and that's the way it'll be. And I can do it, and I can pay these men to come, they were all men, to come from the, the club and teach, and I can continue to teach, and I can reach all these schools who wanted me. That was the start of it. So I didn't have in my mind, I'm going to charge, I'm going to start this great school, and I'm going to teach this. It just all evolved, and it has evolved to this day. That's incredible. And what year was it that you opened up the chess school? It was 82. We started planning it in 81, the principal and I. As I said, he went out and asked for people to think, but we started it in, in January. He got his late bus. So that's the story of how it started, and that's the story of how it's continued. I became a 501c3, a non-profit, in 94, I think it was, because I wanted to do more. I wanted to go out into the Title I schools and teach those children, in, in not just in Berkeley, but in the surrounding areas, because of the integration system in the Berkeley schools, it's less distressed than the schools in Oakland and Richmond. And so the children there need chess. So I wanted to do that. So I became a nonprofit because I wanted to raise the money from foundations and philanthropists and so on. And they mostly contribute to 501c3s. That well, was congratulations. So we are sitting in the new chess school, which has dozens of chess boards and multiple rooms, which is extraordinary. Why do you think chess is so critical for homes? You had mentioned you want chess in more homes. Why do you think chess is such a, a great game for all ages, all ethnicities, all demographics? I'm going to read you a letter that was written by a teacher who says it very well, and I'll tell you then my, my things. But he, he said, this is a third grade teacher in a school called Maxwell Park Elementary in Oakland. It's one of the Title I schools we did go into. They closed the school. Uh, he says, my students were very impatient and impulsive at the beginning of the year. I was uncertain as to how they would react to a game with so many rules, so much strategy and intricacies. Now, a few short months later, my students are all accomplished chess players, and the skills that they have taken away from the chess lessons have helped them become better test takers, better students, and better people. The patience, thoughtfulness, and high-level thinking that are required of them in chess have started to emerge more in the classroom and on the playground as well. That sort of says it so well. But, you know, you can say it more scientifically. Chess stimulates the growth of dendrites which increased the speed and quality of neural communications. 
It exercises both hemispheres of the brain. It improves concentration, memory, and foresight. It protects against dementia, by the way, as, just as an aside. And I have something to say about that, too. It won't help dementia if you just play casually. Chess is a very easy game to learn how to play, and you can play it for fun and have a great time. That won't help your brain. You've got to really work at it. You've got to sit down and force yourself to think ahead. And each time, think ahead a little bit more and a little bit more. That will save you from dementia. So it increases creativity and originality in children. It helps children excel in math. It improves spatial reasoning. And that, incidentally, is the strongest predictor of success in the STEM fields this spatial, spatial reasoning. Positive impacts, we've, we've experienced all of this, but also positive impacts on attendance, behavior, self-esteem, and attitudes towards learning. And we did a study, we've, do, we, we've done three studies, but one, one of our studies done by UC Berkeley School of Education found a dramatic increase in students' fluid reasoning and ability to manage stressful situations, leading to better decision-making. That's what their study came up with. The other studies we did in schools, and all these are proper studies, and the two we did were comparing test scores of uh, students in Oakland and Richmond in those who had chess, those who didn't have chess, and we found it, it just increased the math scores and their English scores, their English language scores also, which people don't think of when they think of chess. Why do you think it applies to the literature and the English skills? Patterns, for one thing memorization. I, I mean, it's an amazing game. And, and uh, you know, people do say, oh, well, other games, I don't know any other game that is not solvable in a way. And chess is not solvable. Chess properly played and properly taught is quite a challenge to the mind. Children go for it like fish to water. And that's Given that today they, they also go for these video games that last seconds and they go on to the next one, the next one, the next one. There's no, no, challenge, no challenge really of any depth to their brain. That they actually go for chess, love it. It says something about the human brain. And our society is wrong. The human brain wants, longs for, needs this in-depth real stimulation which chess gives them and chess is of course a game it's fun and the kids are drawn to it as a game and fun and all the while as they have to get better if they want to win they have to work at it if they want to win they do it and they love it and to me it's that's that's the human mind I also of course feel very strongly that our human mind that all children are born equal and the human mind can be developed in this way, and I've seen it again and again and again in these schools I go into, where the children just lap it up and they go back into classroom. And most importantly, really, is they pay attention, they listen, they and you can't learn if you don't listen. And that's a big reason why these children are not learning. But through chess, they they learn to to listen. That story from the third grade teacher must be so rewarding to hear because it's from your direct yeah. programming and schooling. What do you think it is about chess that keeps children so interested. And the reason, you know, we heard about the school initially is my five-year-old is enrolled and he loves it. And we actually signed him up for chess because he's a terrible loser. He's not athletically inclined, but I wanted him to have more exposure to failure. So I said, what can I 
give him or surround him with that gives him a lot of loss or potential loss frameworks. And he happens to like games. So he said, okay, let's try chess. He loses almost, you know, 100% of the time. And it's the only game or, you know, sport that he will like playing, even though he knows his exposure to loss is pretty high. Yeah. And I don't know what it is about it, but it's the the problem solving, the game, the one-on-one interaction, all of it he just really enjoys. But what do you think it is, especially in children who are generally weary of loss or challenges or, you know, they want to be so wonderful at everything they do. Why do you think it appeals to children so early on? Chess, because chess challenges your mind. And like I said a few minutes ago, the, the human mind wants to be challenged and, and children automatically fall into that. Also, I have to say that the child who doesn't care whether he or she wins or loses will probably never be a good chess player. That's not to say they shouldn't learn how to play it, but it's the child who hates to lose or the person who we all hate to lose. And chess teaches you how to survive losses. George Koltanowski, his Guinness World Book of Records for the most blindfold chess wins ever. Uh, he's now deceased, but he, he was on my first board when I became a 501c3. He was also my mentor and was a great help to me at the time. But I remember he offered to come. He was old. I remember he offered to come to play a simultaneous exhibition at uh, Oxford School, which is the elementary school where I started. A simultaneous exhibition is where one player plays 20 or 40 people at the same time. And here was this champion coming to the school. And I remember a little boy we're all excited about this, you know, and what was going to happen, and oh, they were all going to win. And I remember this little boy, maybe about six years of age, looking up at George and saying, but he, lo, he's old. I'll easily beat him. But he learned. <laughs> he didn't easily beat him. In fact, of course, he lost to none of them. Now, in my long experience now of dealing with children, the boys can take the loss much better than the girls. And Why is that? The girls are just as competitive as boys. But the boys, through their sports mostly, know that you live to fight another day. The girls, meantime, have been playing house or playing with dolls or playing not a win-lose game. Boys play a win-lose game. I mean, I had two sons after, after I had my daughter. And when they would crawl, they would go after a ball and try and get it between two posts. And... My girl just simply didn't do that. Do you find that the female students you have that are exposed to more athletics and sports outside of chess, that they're more open to the losses that they encounter here? Yes. And the girls that we, that we have who stay are usually girls who also play sports, play That's physical sports. Have you noticed the difference of learning? You know, I think you had mentioned spatial reasoning beforehand, and there's a lot of research on education that say boys learn very differently than girls, whether it's literature or spatial reasoning. Have you seen that applied in chess where they learn differently, strategy or opening? No, not that they learn differently. They do things differently. Girls are much more sociable and they like groups. And if you can get a, a group of girls to start chess, they're likely to stay with it. If you can't, they're not. But if you switch that to boys, if it was an all-girls thing like ballet and you bring in two boys, they're not going to stay either. They, they also need a group. But girls need it more and women need it more. I don't know whether that's innate or whether it's formed. I don't know. But I don't see that they learn differently. I do see that they react differently. I see a lot of things. Among them are the expectations that the parents have. It's totally different for girls and for boys. Now, children 
parents are their lives. I mean, they're, they're their world. And if a parent wants this, they try to give it to them without even thinking about it, really. So if the expectation is that you have a good time, but it doesn't matter whether you win or lose, and then that doesn't matter whether you win or lose, and we just have a good time, and dads will say to me, isn't it great? My girl is playing chess. It's wonderful. And they're all so happy. And they're delighted. And the girl comes out and everything is happy. Take a boys tournament. Uh, it's mostly boys. So we don't do boys only tournaments. We do girls only tournaments. Well, we don't do boys only tournaments, but it's mostly boys. So, and the, the boy comes out and is, did, did you win? Well, didn't I tell you not to play that move? Didn't I tell you how to do this? This is, so boys are expected to win and girls are not. That's a huge, huge difference. And the, the children, live up to what's expected of them. Does that change the way that you teach the girls that go to the school? Yes. Personally, I emphasize aggressiveness much more in the girls because it doesn't seem to come to them naturally. You're trying to win this. In, in the end, if you lose, you learn more from a lost game than one game. But you're here, you're trying to win this. Girls are inclined to play defensively and boys are inclined to play they attack. And I, I point out to the girls, if you're going to let them attack all the time, then you're going to lose because they'll break down your defenses. A good way of stopping them attacking you is to attack them. That's what you've got to do in chess. And you know, that's what you've got to do in life, not attack. But you've got to stand up for yourself. You've got to be there. You can't be always. And I wonder if that isn't innate because we are the bearers of children and therefore are more protective of our own bodies. And we have to be, we have small children, babies, and and that's who we are. And boys don't have that. And I wonder if that's why the girls are instinctively defensive rather than rather than aggressive. But I know I teach them. I, I really get the girls. No, no, don't play that. Play, play, you know, how could you attack him here? Right. Oh, I love that. The parallels that you mentioned with chess and also with broader life for boys and girls, men and women, it's fascinating to me because I feel I work in the field of finance and investments and it's very similar where, you know, the stereotype of women being less confident, less vocal, less aggressive applies. And so, so much of what you mentioned with little girls playing chess, it's, it's shocking to me, but it continues with them as, you know, we kind of get older, which thankfully it's changing, but it's certainly is very similar. You can be a wonderful mother and you can protect your children and you can do all this and you can stand up for yourself and you can achieve your worth, you know, achieve what you can achieve. You can, you can do it all. You can. What are your long-term goals for the Berkeley Chess School? You know, getting a, getting a building was a long-term goal of the Berkeley Chess School and of mine. And why? Why? Because I think it's such, such an amazing thing for society, for children, for, and children grow up to be adults. And it's just a great thing for society to have people who critically think, for example. And you've got to do that in chess. I think our voting results would be quite different if our population were critical thinkers. I think you wouldn't take what you see on the television hitting you as truth. If you were a critical thinker, you would say, oh, why? How? Who's behind this? You know, you'd ask these questions, and we don't as a society. Uh, in chess, you've got to. So I, I think it's such a wonderful thing for society. And what I have established has taken a lot of my life. And I've finally become the Mies van der Rohe of chess, or the Mozart. So I was, I was able to achieve in that and felt very, very good about doing it. So I wanted to have... I wanted it to be permanent for future generations. 
we are a 501c3. I don't own this building. It really belongs to Chess. And that's what I wanted. And it'll go on. It'll go on. Luckily, I do have my son who's in the program and sort of running it too with me right now. And he's willing to continue doing that if I ever die, which I don't plan to. <laughs> so, <laughs> so that's what I have. But now the future, I, I want this building isn't big enough for class. There are classes on Friday nights here in Berkeley. We have eight sections of chess, eight classes of different levels. And it's, it's just very rich because all the children in the, in the class are the same level, unlike out at the schools where there's a whole mix. And therefore the teacher can teach to this exact level and the children get the most out of it. Well, we don't have eight classrooms here. I want to raise the money to put a, another story on. And then I will feel it is established, it will go on. And then what? Well, our mission is to bring chess to everybody. And that is the mission, ultimately. The building will help hugely. For example, when we run a tournament, what we pay in mortgage payments for buying this building is less than what we paid in rent. To rent halls, to run tournaments, to rent rooms, to run classrooms. It makes all the sense from any viewpoint what happened to us. So when the building is, is eventually meets our needs, then we can even more fully address. And I mean everybody. I mean the children from, from age five, I try not to do four-year-olds, on to students in college, to, to adults, to seniors, to everybody, to old and young, rich and poor, male and female. I, I've seen a huge increase in the number of girls who take chess from when I first started, though my 50% of the 72 who came were all girls. But anyway, so that's, that's my vision for the future. When I first started this, people laughed at me. They said, who do you think is going to pay to teach chess? Well, I had three kids. I was paying for soccer. I was paying for ballet. I was paying for piano. I was paying for everything. Why not pay for chess? And of course, I was right. Yes, parents would and did pay for chess, more so now than then. So as I said, I didn't plan it as starting off. But when I started off, it was, I sort of knew people would pay for it, and they did. You had mentioned that you learn more from a loss game than a win game. Segwaying to the title of this podcast and, and show, what is one of your most memorable or impactful failures, whether it's personal, whether through the game of chess? I'd love to hear your story on that. Well, I suppose it started with the music where I didn't become, it was very clear to me that I was not a genius. And so that was in a way a failure because I'd gone quite far in music. I'd played in the orchestra at school and obviously I'd been, had this offer, but I felt I wasn't up to it. So that was a failure. And then I went into architecture and that was a failure too. You know, I, I longed to produce these marvelous things, but didn't have the giftedness to do it. So that was a failure too. And then I hit the chess and children, and I feel this has not been a failure. This has been a success. But of course, I'd never, if I had been a working mom in, in architecture or, or music, then this wouldn't have happened. And I feel this is enormously worthwhile. Would have been great to be Mozart too. But <laughs> <laughs> and that is certainly has, has ongoing worth forever. When you're looking at the kids and you're teaching them strategy and opening moves, and they are at the end and one student has to certainly win versus the other. Do you have certain things that you say or strategy lessons or processes in place for the kids who don't take the loss so well? 
Well, I, I warmed to them because I said, if they don't take a loss, well, it means they're going to be good chess players. You hang in there. Yeah, I tell them it's, it's, it's a game and that they learn more from games. And, and to become, I was, I was never a master, so I, I was a champion, but become that, I had to work at it. And the way to work at it is to go over your games that you lose and go over them immediately and write down why you made the moves that you feel were the bad moves. Then if you have a teacher at school or wherever you have, uh, show your game to the teacher who's better at chess than you are, who will say, oh, maybe you should have played this or maybe you should have played that. But essentially, you should go over it yourself with your your own mind while it's fresh in your mind as to why you made these blunders. And often you will find, dear child, that was because you moved too fast. So very simply, that's very simply solved. Move slower, think deeper. It's easy to say that, but it's harder to do. So you just, if you go over your own games, you'll begin to realize, I should have not moved so fast there. And if I hadn't moved so fast, I would have seen it. So you have the ability to be able to see it and not make those mistakes if you just take the time. Those sort of things. But mostly children, if they're crying, you know, there's nothing to say except, you know, it's okay, you'll win the next time, something like that, you know. The other thing we pride ourselves in the Berkeley Chess School of doing is considering the whole child, not just, you know, go to this tournament and win for the Berkeley Chess School and we, you'll come back with a trophy and all be proud of you. That's all true, but it's not why we're doing it. We're, I'm not doing it to produce geniuses or grandmasters. I'm doing it to reach all the children, to help all the children become better citizens. Now, we have produced, actually, this year, one of our former students became United States champion against huge odds. He is a grandmaster, of course. We have another grandmaster who's, in fact, both of those were second to Magnus Carlsen when he played his first there still are, but also when he played his first uh, and won the world championship. We also had the youngest in history of becoming masters. Josiah Stearman did it at 10. Christopher Yu did it at 9. When they came at the Berkeley Chess School, were they immediately recognized as gifted? Or did you say, okay, they're pretty good? Oh, Let's- Christopher was clearly very gifted when he first came to us. Lovely boy, still a lovely boy, right? I mean, he's extraordinary. Right now, he's 11, and he is state champion. That means he was playing in a tournament against men and women, not children. He's state champion. He also is, has one of his norms, he's a, he's a master. He's one of two norms, I think, for his international master. And he's he's just going. I mean, he's amazing. And he was from the very beginning. Josiah took a little while for us to notice. Maybe he was, and we didn't notice. And it was Josiah's little brother, who was the four-year-old, who was able to do this. Well, I guess I didn't talk about it in here, but his four-year-old little brother was able to play a game and come out of the tournament hall and show the entire game to his father. It's incredible. Which, which is incredible, yeah. I, I just couldn't believe it. So sometimes four-year-olds can do it, but very, very seldom. <laughs> In fact, five-year-olds, it's mostly teaching them to enjoy it and hoping at the end that they can uh, actually move the pieces properly. But, you know, I have a story about that too, if there's still time. Yeah, of course. I remember going into a, a class that my son was teaching, my oldest son, and there was one little boy sitting with his back to the board and all the other children were facing the board. And I thought... 
oh dear, this is not what, the way we discipline children in the Berkeley Chess School, and it's my son, what's going on? So I didn't say anything and found out as I sat and watched that what was happening was the child, my son's expectations my, of these kindergartners uh, had the expectation that these children could memorize the game he had just shown. And so they would sit with their back to the thing and the other children would watch. And uh, as in blindfold chess, you tell them what the opponent moves. So you would say E4 and, and he would visualize it in his head and say E5, the game he had just learned. And then you would tell him the next move and he would visualize his, he would be able to tell what his move is the next, for the next move and so on through the entire game. And these children were doing this at age five, and they could wait for their turn to come up and do it. This is expectations. This is expectations. <laughs> I couldn't believe it. You've expected these children to play blindfold chess at age five? Yes, and they did. I need to blindfold my child right now. I see if that works. <laughs> well, yeah. That is yeah. incredible. What a story. What or who inspires you? What inspires me? potential of what I can still do and whatever time is left to me I told you earlier I don't plan to die but uh, (laughs) is all that can be done in that time in this field is what keeps me going also the game itself is amazing it's enjoyable as well as doing all these wonderful things and of course the children and to see those little eyes light up as something connects in the brain as I mentioned earlier is just such a, a plus so that keeps me going. And your other question was who? I hate to say this, but my parents, really. Yeah, I was thinking of my mother when I read through some, some of your stuff. And she would say, I sometimes feel overwhelmed by what I have to do, what I create for myself to do. But it, there's more to do than is the time in which to do it. There simply is. So what to do? And you can become utterly depressed or think, I can't handle this. And she would say, you know, well, you can only do what you can do. Don't beat up on yourself. Do one thing at a time. And I just do that and I, it calms me down a bit. And so other things are not getting done. You, you can only do what you can do and just do one thing at a time. And it's great advice. And also my parents were so supportive of me. They thought the world of me and my, and my brother. And God, does that, the expectations, I mean, does that help you in life that you're, you're told from a child you can do anything you want to do? And I was a girl in that time when I told you my mother couldn't, couldn't work. Different times. And yet my parents, in my boarding school that I went to as a high schooler, uh, they didn't have advanced math because we were girls. My father went down and said, well, my girl can do math very well, so start advanced class. And they did. And there were 10 of us who did the advanced and passed it in our, in our, in our leaving certificate, passed it in our high school. What thing. an incredible story. Good for your dad. So my, my parents, it wasn't, I could do anything. It doesn't matter that I was a girl. I mean, I was expected the usual thing to marry and have children and all that. But that was a given. That was going to happen. What was important was that I pursued my dream or my wish or whatever I wanted to do. I love that so much. And did you, now you have three kids yourself. Did yeah. you apply the same parenting principles that, your parents had? I did, but it takes two to tango. My my husband didn't quite have the same upbringing as I had, but yes, they got it from me and they got more, I don't know, caution is it called, from, from my husband. My father was different. My father was also just in my court totally and my mother as well. It was, it was, 
It was a wonderful way to be brought up. And yet, by the same token, we were brought up Catholic, and you're, you don't have a swelled head. You're, when you're a Catholic, you be modest and humble, and you don't boast. And all of these things happened at the same time. But underneath of all of that was, hey, you can do anything you want to do. You're as good as anybody. What are you most proud of? That I've done? My children. Oh, God, kids. Um, kids are wonderful. I mean, they're just, all kids are wonderful. And mine were my kids. And they were wonderful. Just the joy of it and the joy of grand, granddaughters now. I have two granddaughters. There's nothing like it. That, that's why I think, you know, I see in, back to men and women in chess. Judith Polgar was one of the strongest women ever to play chess. And she had reached, I believe, in the top 10 of the world. And she, she decided she would get married and have children. And she got married and had children. And she, that became the priority. She continued to play chess for a while, but you know, she couldn't reach those standards. And my advice to girls who sometimes ask me about this when they're in high school is, you know, there are priorities and priorities. And having a child is the most amazing thing you can possibly do. Yeah, being world chess champion is great too, but it does not compare with having a child. And I know everybody has children, so it's very commonplace. We all have children. What's the big deal? Each birth is a huge deal, and it's your birth and your child, and that's much more important. And so the men don't have that to do, so they become world, so so what? And that's why when I see in China, I think the current, she's, I think she's 14 years of age. And I think, well, if you can do it before you, you reach the point of having children, then it's, it's possible. But there's, there's, you know, there's no question which is the most amazing thing. How many students do you think you've had over the 37 years? Oh, gosh, we do 7,000 a year. I don't know. We didn't start, have 7,000 when I first started, so I wouldn't know. But we've been doing 7,000 a year for years wow. and years and years. So what's huge. The, what's the age range? Is it mostly middle school? It's, no, it's mostly elementary school. It's mostly elementary school. Then they it, it, it tapers off quite dramatically at middle school and comes back a bit at high school. But when you think of all the changes that's happening to them, you know, in middle school, puberties hit them and all these things are, and all the sports and yeah, it's understandable. But they do come back in, in high school, not in the same numbers. The big thing is to get the girls to hang in. Well, Elizabeth, thank you so much. This was such an incredible conversation and I could see why your parents believed in you so much. You have grit and you have oh, grace. Oh, they, they made me. <laughs> that <laughs> they, incredible. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for joining me. 